Welcome to another edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. Marcus Path alongside Reggie Rizzo. On today's episode, the Mother Mary of Stingrays. NASA's looking for volunteers to take part in a simulated Mars mission. A quick look at the history of President's Day. And on this day in history, we mail our children. Yes, you heard me right there. That's all coming up on Cool Stuff. A marvel of nature in the mountains of North Carolina. That's where a female stingray named Charlotte finds herself pregnant with as many as four pups despite having no male stingray companions within her tank. Speaking to the AP last week, Brenda Raymer, executive director of the Aquarium and Shark Lab on Main Street in downtown Hendersonville, said, quote, here's our girl saying, hey, happy Valentine's Day. Let's have some pups, end quote. The small aquarium is run by Raymer's educational nonprofit, Team Echo, which encourages local school children and others to take an interest in science. So what exactly happened here? At first, Raymer jokingly mentioned that perhaps Charlotte mated with one of the five small sharks that she shares a tank with. And the local news outlets ran with that. But experts, including Raymer, have since pointed out that's actually impossible. Per Katie Lyons, a research scientist at the Georgia Aquarium in Atlanta, the animals wouldn't match up anatomically and neither would their DNA. Quote, we should set the record straight that there aren't some shark ray shenanigans happening here, end quote. So what's actually taking place? Well, it's the process of parthenogenesis, a type of asexual reproduction in which offspring develop from unfertilized eggs, meaning there is no genetic contribution from a male. Instead, a female's egg fuses with another cell, triggers cell division, and leads to the creation of an embryo. The cell that fuses with the egg is actually known as a polar body. They're produced when a female is creating an egg, but usually are not used. The phenomenon is relatively rare, but per the AP, it can occur in some insects, fish, amphibians, birds, and reptiles, but never mammals. And this appears to be the only documented case of it happening with a round stingray. Other documented examples include California condors, a type of vulture, Komodo dragons, and yellow-bellied water snakes. And don't forget the scene in Jurassic Park when that happened. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's a lot of science from Jurassic Park that seems almost more and more real these days uh, as time goes on. Uh, said Lyons, quote, we don't know why it happens, just that it's kind of this really neat phenomenon that they seem to be able to do, end quote. Jumping back a bit, Raymer and her team initially thought Charlotte might have a tumor upon noticing a quickly growing lump on her back, but an ultrasound quickly revealed the pregnancy. Said Raymer, quote, we were all like, shut the back door. There's no way. We thought we were overfeeding her, but we were overfeeding her because she has more mouths to feed, end quote. Charlotte currently lives in a 2,200-gallon tank. That's approximately the size of a construction dumpster. But Raymer said she's hoping to get a tank nearly twice that size to accommodate Charlotte's pups, perhaps adding to the intrigue a bit. Round stingrays like Charlotte aren't typically found in the Appalachian Mountains, obviously. Instead, they're abundant on the Pacific coast of Southern California and Mexico, often lying on the ocean's sandy bottom near the shoreline. So needless to say, Charlotte is a long way from quote-unquote home. In the wild, round stingrays are typically the size of a small dinner plate. They eat small worms, crabs, and mollusks, and they're preyed upon by certain types of sharks, seals, and giant sea bass. Again, that per the AP. Of course, they're well known to humans due to their painful sting, often resulting from a beachgoer's stepping on them in shallow waters. Per Lyons, quote, 
I'm glad the round stingray is getting the media attention that it deserves. It's not necessarily as sexy as a white shark, but they do a lot of really neat stuff, end quote. I'm really amused that the reporter just took that quote that was, you know, obviously a joke and ran with it. <laughs> Do you think he was serious for, I mean, for real? <laughs> I don't know why I'm reminded of South Park and Man Bear Pig. Yeah, that is. Well, as you're reading it, Stingray Shark mixed together this summer. <laughs> that would have been a way cooler headline had it uh, actually been true, but alas, oh. no. I don't know. It could be another Sharknado. I don't want to mess with that. <laughs> oh, look out for the shark rays. <laughs> now, not only can they eat you, but they can sting you with their tail, too. God. Yeah, that, sounds, that sounds like a creature I don't want to mess with. That's for sure. I'm staying out of the water moving forward. We're going to need a bigger boat. If you are interested in traveling to Mars, but you aren't ready to leave Earth, NASA is looking for volunteers to take part in a simulated Martian environment mission. They are now taking applications for the second edition of the Crew Health and Performance Exploration Analog, or CHEPI. The applications are due on April 2nd, with the simulated mission taking place in spring of 2025. However, this isn't a vacation. For a full year, you will be expected to carry out daily tasks with your crewmates in a 3D-printed living space that is about 1,700 square feet. The living space, known as Mars Dune Alpha, will have a kitchen, two bathrooms, private bedrooms, a work area, and a recreational area, which I have to say actually does probably sound a little bit better than some of those apartments you find in New York or L.A. So, I mean, maybe <laughs> it's worth it. The mission will be located at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston. Some of the tasks listed for the crew are simulated spacewalks, robotic operations, crop growth, and yes, you are expected to clean up and take care of yourself, as they also listed habitat maintenance, exercise, and personal hygiene as tasks to be completed. Which, if you're not going to stay clean or take care of yourself, yeah, I don't know if I want to spend the next uh, year in a small little habitat with you. I would be interested to know, are you taking all of your personal hygiene products with you? Like, do I bring four sticks of deodorant just to be prepared for the next year? I'm assuming they're going to give you what you would only be able to have on Mars. So there's probably going to be like powders and, you know, stuff like that. Maybe not as much like running water, but other ways to, to stay clean. That's my assumption because this is to simulate a Mars mission. So you're not going to have, you know, a, a warm shower all the time. Can't run down to the Mars CVS or Walgreens and pick <laughs> no. up some items. <laughs> nope. Where is that travel shampoo? <laughs> Do you on have to go through TSA on the way up? Does yeah, it have I to be travel so. size? <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> on top of that, there will be a 22-minute delay in all communication to simulate the delayed response that will occur with astronauts when they actually are on Mars. Now, before applying, there are a few requirements. Candidates must be a U.S. citizen or permanent resident between the ages of 30 and 55, they also require a master's degree in a STEM field with two years of STEM experience or 1,000 hours of piloting experience. Oh, uh, shoot. We're disqualified. I, I am. I know. I, I mean, if you're curious, uh, STEM does stand for the science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. So in one of those fields, you need to have a master's degree and two years of experience. So, yeah, I'm I'm definitely disqualified. I I don't think podcasting counts in the STEM field. Perhaps they want to document the mission in the form <laughs> of a podcast. Maybe. Captain's log. I'll just be sitting there. You guys do the work. I'm going to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> 
NASA will monitor the crew during the year to evaluate mental and physical demands to see what it would take to live on Mars. The volunteers from the first Chappie mission started in June of 2023, and NASA has a goal of carrying out three of these missions. It is predicted that it could take as few as 22 people to start a colony on Mars, so I hope if you're one of the first ones to get there, uh, that you're pretty good at getting along with everyone, because that's not a lot of people. You piss one person off, I, I think it might go bad. <laughs> Fair enough. Yes, that, that's that is possible. You, uh, of course, hopefully you have some peers, some people that you can call a friend while you're up there. Uh, as exciting as it sounds, I'm not sure I would be in a rush to leave all modern amenities behind because, you know, that's what you're doing when when a group finally actually goes to Mars. You're not getting a local restaurant at any point throughout. You're not getting uh, the convenience of walking down the street to pick up items, whatever they may be. All of that is out the window, and you're just hoping that NASA or someone on Earth can send you the supplies that you're looking for. So I feel like you almost have to be uh, of a of a minimalist type personality, if that makes sense, Reggie, to want to take something like this on. Yeah, and hopefully you're not into the dating scene because that Tinder profile is going to be pretty <laughs> swiping. You're not going to have any choices there. <laughs> what do you want to do? Take another walk on Mars? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for the 317th straight day. Let's do it. Well, if you're listening to this episode on the day of its release, it's President's Day in the United States. And if you're listening to it on a later date, well, you're still going to hear about the history of this longtime holiday. It's a story that begins in 1800, following the passing of the first U.S. president, George Washington, in December of 1799. Just a couple of months later, his February 22nd birthday would become a day of remembrance. Understandably so, of course, given Washington's long list of accomplishments, including leading the Continental Army across the Delaware River in 1776, commemorated in a unforgettable painting. That was the first move in a surprise attack and victory against Hessian forces at the Battle of Trenton in New Jersey during, of course, the American Revolutionary War. So at the time, Washington was naturally revered as one of, if not the most important figure in American history. So much so that events like the 1832 centennial of his birth and the start of construction on the Washington Monument in 1848 were cause for national celebration. That per the library archives at Georgia Southern University. And thus, in 1862, Abraham Lincoln officially issued a proclamation declaring February 22nd a day of celebration to honor Washington. It officially became a federal holiday 17 years later. Of course, most of us now recognize February 22nd as President's Day and not just Washington's birthday. That shift began in the late 1960s when Congress proposed a measure known as the Uniform Monday Holiday Act. Championed by Senator Robert McClory of Illinois, the law sought to shift the celebration of several federal holidays from a specific date to a series of predetermined Mondays. The Uniform Monday Holiday Act also included a provision to combine the celebration of Washington's birthday with that of Abraham Lincoln, which fell on February 12th. Of course, Lincoln's birthday had long been a state holiday in places like Illinois, and there are actually four U.S. presidents with birthdays in the month of February, Washington, Lincoln, William Henry Harrison, and Ronald Reagan. Eventually, the main piece of the Uniform Monday Holiday Act passed in 1968 and officially took effect 
Act in 1971 following an executive order from President Richard M. Nixon, which led to the establishment of what we now know as President's Day. So here we are, Reggie. It feels like, uh, or rather it feels like, this holiday is acknowledged by most, celebrated by some, and... I don't know. It feels like it's hit or miss as to whether or not you have to work on President's Day. I always find President's Day interesting. And I mean, it's a good thing we're celebrating William Henry Harrison, naturally the ninth president of the United States. <laughs> in case <too. laughs> I think he you know, falls to the back of the line when we're talking about President's Day. <laughs> yeah, he, he didn't really have a long term in office. Uh, he, he, <laughs> he died within the first year, so it was a pretty short term for him. But yeah. well, <laughs> and, and Ronald Reagan hadn't even been in office. When, of course, the Uniform Monday Holiday Act passed in 68. I kind of wish they would have kept it on a specific day, because as much as I like to have Mondays off when, you know, I do have a job that allows that, it'd be nice to have like a random Thursday or a random, you know, a random day of the week, just middle of the week. Hey, we're going to have this day off. It's always a Monday or something. Assuming you actually get it off. I know a lot of people who are working today. Yes. Yes. I mean... Although it is more confusing when the postal service doesn't randomly deliver on a Thursday versus a Monday. You know, you can't kind of expect it because a lot of holidays fall on a Monday. You got a lot of letters you're waiting on? I am. I am. I I got a whole (laughs) bundle of letters I'm waiting for. Waiting for all of my correspondence. You know, I want to hear how the war is going. (laughs) Dearest Reggie. I believe you'd be Reginald in that instance. <laughs> Dearest Reginald, the war has been tough. I write I by miss nightfall. you dearly. <laughs> Speaking of mail, let's head off to this day in history. I think we've all sent or received some odd packages with the post office. Uh, but have you ever sent a child? Have you even considered <laughs> sending a child, Marcus? Well, no, because I don't want to be arrested. <laughs> okay, that's a good point. Good point. Well, on this date in history, February 19th, 1914, five-year-old Charlotte May Piersdorf was mailed by train from Grangeville, Idaho, to her grandparents' house 73 miles away. They stuck stamps on her coat to pay for the postage. Now, the reason why they did this, it was cheaper than buying a train ticket at the time. The postage cost 32 cents, which if you take into account inflation, would be about $10 today. So $10 to mail your child. Wow. This isn't the only case that it happened, though. It was also reported that an eight-month-old baby boy from Ohio, they had him sent via the mail to his grandmother. But since he was just under 11 pounds, he was under the weight limit for the time, and it only cost them 15 cents in postage stamps. Oh, my gosh. However, they did insure him for $50. (laughs) This is outrageous. Luckily, that trip was only a few miles away. Now, the post office, which started in 1775 with the Continental Congress turning the Constitutional Post into the Post Office of the United States, actually began their parcel deliveries in 1913. And postmen were trusted local officials. So while it may seem odd to mail your child, locals felt somewhat safe doing it because everyone in town knew the the postal carrier. In fact, in the case of Charlotte May... It was her cousin who was a postal clerk that delivered her on the train. So the postal worker traveled the entire country? I mean, I wouldn't assume that my local mailman today is going to be taking letters all the way to wherever. You know, I I live in Nevada, so if I mailed something to Virginia, it's going to 
across a lot of different hands, but I obviously different times at that point. Yeah, different times. I'm assuming they had a route like you jump on the train. Here's your letter. We're driving. We're bringing it to this town, then this town, then this town until however far you get. And then you come back. I'm just guessing. But I mean, you didn't have the infrastructure that you do now that you can't just be like, we're going to ship it. And then you mail it to your little community. Uh, There had to be somebody to, I think, accompany the mail. Uh, during this time. You know what? That that sounds like a fun job. I think if I had lived at that time, I would I would enjoy getting out on the train, seeing the country a little bit, taking people some letters. I kind of wonder how many times I got robbed. I, yeah. you know, it uh, because all we have to go off of are movies and people yeah. riding up on horseback and commandeering a train. I, that's a great question. I don't know. I But I wouldn't assume, hey, rob a mail truck or a mail train in this instance that there's going to be uh, a lot of spoils to be had there. I don't know. And, you know, it's not just babies that the Postal Service took care of. Uh, United States Postal Service historian Jenny Lynch said, quote, mail carriers were trusted servants. And and that goes to prove it. There are stories of rural carriers delivering babies and taking care of the sick. Even now, they'll save lives because they're sometimes the only persons that visit a remote household every day, end quote. Hmm. Which that's a fair point. I mean, even though you make fun of getting letters, they still come out. You have to get your junk mail. If they see that piling up, they may be there for you. So they are still somewhat trusted officials. Naturally, the post office was not a fan of the practice of mailing children. And in June of 1920, they officially said children cannot be sent by parcel post. In fact, the rule barred all humans and live animals from being shipped with a few exceptions, which included bees and other bugs and day-old poultry. Bees? Who's mailing bees and day-old poultry? <laughs> I I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like bees would not be a very safe uh, delivery. Like, here's my package of bees. <laughs> are, you, are you trying to hurt the other individual? <laughs> package of wasps. <laughs> I realize, by the way, that I'm not doing a very good job of taking the time into account uh, with for context here. But thinking about what's going on in modern terms is, is kind of funny. In 1997, Michael Old Tunnel wrote a book called Mailing May, which was about Charlotte May's childhood and the trip she took to see her grandma. And in case you're curious, that uh, Postal Service unofficial motto, neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of night stays these couriers from swift completion of their appointed routes, was believed to have started at the New York City Post Office on 8th Avenue when it opened in 1914. I guess they decided to leave out the part of nor annoying or screaming child, so still stop the uh, pointed routes. I, <laughs> I can't imagine being the postal worker and going, oh, you got to be kidding me. Look, I love you guys and I love your children, but I don't want to play babysitter across the country on a train. I, yeah. That that would have to be frustrating because, yeah, it's one thing to be taking care of people's letters, and I'm sure you took pride in that if you were good at your job, but to protect their children across country? Without knowing, like you said earlier, do trains get robbed? Obviously, you're out in the wilderness. If the train breaks down, there's a lot that could happen there. And now I've been entrusted with someone else's child and trying to get them safely to another state. That just sounds uh, miserable. I did see a picture. I think it was of the eight month old boy. He had the, the kid in the mail bag, like just oh in the mail bag, carrying it around. Unbelievable. I, I, I mean, what parent feels comfortable shipping off their eight-month-old child via the it d- mail? 
a different time, Marcus, a different time. I, I understand. I mean, they cow. did insure him for 50 bucks, which we is a lot of money. Him. <laughs> this sounds like it could have been a scheme of sorts. Uh, wow. I hope, I hope they lose our child. We have too yes. many. <laughs> we'll claim the 50 bucks. They'll find him. I, man, that's uh, I, I my mind is blown right now. I know. I, I keep thinking, though, that if I could just mail my kids to grandma's house for the summer, that'd be great. <laughs> you can mail them back. We'll see you when you get back here. I'm going to need a bigger mailbox. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us on another edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. You can always email us at coolstuffcommute at gmail.com. If you happen to be listening on Apple Podcasts, uh, like us, leave a review. We'd appreciate it very much. I'm Reggie Rizzo. He's Marcus Path. We'll be back with more cool stuff tomorrow.